Well, there was quite a range of questions. Uh, probably won't get through all of them tonight. So the first one, could you please describe the role that faith or trust has played in your personal practice in teaching? Has it changed over time? If so, how? And where is it now? <laughs> what was interesting about getting these questions in advance, it really, you know, I let each one kind of just sit in my mind and over these days reflecting on them. I first came into contact with the Buddhist teachings in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This was right after I graduated college uh, in 65. And before I went to Thailand, I didn't know anything about the Buddhist teachings. I hadn't come in contact with it at all. But I was teaching uh, English in Thailand and uh, teaching right in Bangkok down the street from quite a famous temple, the Marble Temple. And I started going to discussion groups led by uh, some Western monks, four Westerners. And at first I just started reading, you know, reading the suttas and reading books on Buddhism. And so the first kind of faith in the teachings really arose from the reading. Because everything just made sense. You know, just the basic teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Paths and the Three Characteristics and just everything we talk about all the time. It just seemed so obviously true. You know, so it didn't require any great leap of faith to have confidence in it. Uh, and what was so amazing to me, even on that intellectual or conceptual le level, just how clear it was. You know, there wasn't any mumbo-jumbo. It was just a basic description of experience. And so that inspired a lot of confidence. Then I started, as many of you know from stories I've told, you know, at these discussion groups, I studied philosophy in college, so my mind was very active. And I would just ask endless questions. And finally, one of them said, Joseph, I think you should try meditating. And I think it was mostly just to get me to be quiet. <laughs> and so he gave me the very you know, initial instructions of sitting and just watching the breath. And I got all my paraphernalia together and cushions and this and that and sat. And I set my alarm clock for five minutes, you know, because I didn't want to sit too long. But it was quite amazing that even in that first five minutes of meditation, the first meditation I had ever done, something quite remarkable happened. Not any great enlightenment, but just to see that we could turn the mind inward rather than looking outward. So it was just really a turning in place. And that, to me, was revelatory. You know, no, as obvious as it is, nobody had ever suggested that I do it, you know, that anyone do it. And so the excitement of that 
as some of you <laughs> undoubtedly have heard, I was so excited by this prospect of looking into my own mind, I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> and I'm still doing it, really. <laughs> so now I suggest they keep their eyes closed. <laughs> so there was a kind of faith that came really just from the excitement, you know, of of the practice and the possibility that there was a path, you know, of really exploring the inner world. And then I went to India uh, after, after the Peace Corps looking for a teacher. And again, one of the things Munindraji said to me, my first teacher, very early on when I first went there, also inspired a lot of faith. He said that if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. It was such a basic common sense, non-dogmatic statement. There was was nothing to fight against in that. It seemed so obviously true. If we want to understand ourselves, we need to look. We need to become more aware, more mindful. So again, there was just a lot of confidence in the path of practice. That basically... Strengthening mindfulness is the way to discover things. So there was never much doubt about that. Of course, then there is the challenge of actually doing the practice. Right? And I think this is where for certainly myself and for almost everybody, at different times on the path, we come up against... Um, challenges and difficulties. Sometimes they're relatively minor and we can work with them easily. Sometimes they're really huge, you know, real mind storms where it feels overwhelming, where we feel like we don't have the resources, the inner resources to be with them. And that's really where doubt can come. It's not doubt about the teachings and it's not even doubt about the practice. It can be doubt about our ability to do the practice. So this is something that I think everybody at one point or another you know, faces this challenge in their practice because the quieter we become, the deeper we go, we start to touch some very, very deep patterns of our conditioning. And you know, the forces of Mara, all the forces of ignorance and delusion in the mind can become very strong. You know, you probably remember this, the story of the Bodhisattva under the Bodhi tree, the night of his enlightenment, attacked by all the forces of Mara. Joseph Campbell described it in his book, Here with a Thousand Faces, in very mythopoetic language, you know, of the forces of desire and lust and anger and all the demons and you know everything attacking the bodhisattva. But as I mentioned last week or the week before, you know how he could just stay there with his mind unmoved. Well, at different times our minds might move a bit in the face of all this. So what's important, I think, here in terms of 
faith and confidence in our own ability, I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that when the challenge of what's arising becomes too much, when we feel overwhelmed, when we're losing our balance, that's the time to retreat a little bit. It's not the time to push forward. We really need to kind of settle back, take it easy a bit, regroup, let the mind come back to a place of balance in whatever way it can. So this is very important to learn, just uh, how we play with the balance of strong energy and effort in times of pulling back, you know, when things just get too much. And that's not, that's not a defeat. That's just a, a strategic response to what's happening in the moment. Another aspect of the doubt that can arise at this time, and one that I think would be really uh, interesting to observe. I mean, what forms do the doubts take when we feel overwhelmed? Or even not overwhelmed, but just, you know, where it's really difficult, really challenging. So the doubt may be, I can't do it. You know, it's too hard. It's uh, maybe next life. You know, whatever particular thoughts we have. If we have enough kind of mental interest and clarity at that time, it's very interesting to see how those doubts are linked with the mental defilement. In Pali, it's called mana, M-A-N-A, which is translated in English as conceit, but it's not conceit as we usually use the word. It's the mental conditioning of I am. It's the I amness. And this I am can take different forms. It can be I am in comparison to others. You know, I'm worse than, I'm better than, I'm equal to. But it's all about an I in relationship to others. Or the conceit can be I over time. I was this, I am this, I will be that. So the I can be created in both ways. Conceit. This mana is not uprooted till we're an arhant, which means that this is a very deeply rooted defilement. This is going to be there for a long time. We need to learn to recognize it and to make friends with it, because if we struggle with it or fight with it, it's going to be a long haul of struggle. This is a very deeply rooted conditioning. So if we can begin to see, oh, I can't do this. You know, I'm the worst yogi in the world. Or whatever particular form, you know, our doubts are taking. If we can see the mana contained within that and really recognize it as such, the whole process can be uplifting. There's, there's a significant 
change in the practice. And this ties in again to the question of faith and trust. When we go from judging ourselves for the defilements that arise to being glad to see them, because we would rather see them than not see them. You know? And so now, knowing that mana is not eliminated till one's an arhant, every time I see it in my mind, some kind of I am, I get so happy because I'm happy to be seeing it. And I feel, yeah, I'm working on arhantship now. <laughs> you know, I feel, yeah, I'm really getting to that, <laughs> to the deepest of the defilements. And it's actually energizing. When we make that uh, shift in our understanding of being discouraged by the defilements to being glad to see them, right, that really uh, is another huge source of faith you know, and of confidence. Um, So that's kind of where it is now. Glad to see the defilements, of which there are many. Okay. John Peacock said, it is because we don't perceive experience as a Nietzsche and Anatta that we perceive it as Dukkha. I don't know if you know who John Peacock is. He's uh, a Buddhist teacher and scholar. Very uh, interesting guy. Okay, is it because we don't, he said, it's, it is because we don't perceive experience as a Nietzsche and a Nata that we experience it as Dukkha. To what degree is the path or training in reperception such that we simply do not see Dukkha? Of course, it's hard to know just from this what he really meant. Uh, but on the surface of it, I don't really agree with that statement, that it's because we don't see a Nietzsche and Anatta that we experience Dukkha. Very often in the texts, these three characteristics of impermanence, Dukkha, unsatisfying quality, and selflessness, they're very much linked, where the Buddha said it's because things are impermanent that they are unsatisfying that they are ultimately unsatisfying. And it just makes sense. You know, we're not going to find lasting fulfillment in things which don't last. And then he would link, if things are impermanent and unsatisfying, how could we call them? How, why do we claim them as being self? You know, because of their momentary nature. So I see these three as very linked. But as I was thinking about this, and... You know, I have a lot of respect for John. I was trying to think, well, what might he have meant by this? And it could be that he was referring to dukkha in its limited meaning of suffering. Now, and that's often the usual translation. You know, the, say the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. But it's not a very good translation of dukkha because 
there are lots of situations that are not suffering and still unsatisfying or unreliable. Right? When, when we go from a painful experience to a pleasant one, do we experience that as suffering? No. <laughs> we're, quite, we're quite happy that it's gone from pain to pleasant. And yet it is still dukkha. Right? The arising of the pleasant feeling is still dukkha. It's not because it's suffering. It's because every conditioned arising is impermanent and therefore not capable of giving a full satisfaction. So he may have meant, and again I'm just projecting this since he's not here, that when we, that when we see anicca and anatta, that that may reduce the suffering aspect you know, in our relationship to experience. But it doesn't really, doesn't really eliminate the truth of dukkha, the truth of things being unsatisfying, because they're so, they're so intimately connected with impermanence. Well, this was a good one. How much freedom of choice do beings have? The old question of free will. We were discussing it in a staff group the other night, no, last night. Of course, this question could be looked at on many levels. You know, it could be looked at on a metaphysical level. You know, is there really is there really free will? And I. So I was saying last night, I don't think that the, those two words mean anything together. I and mean, somebody put them together, but as I think about it, it doesn't mean anything. What would it mean to say free will? It suggests that there's some agent who's not constrained by anything. So maybe God has free will, I don't know. But the term really doesn't connect with anything in our experience because will itself, intention itself, volition itself is a conditioned phenomenon that arises out of causes. So it's just this notion of it being free or free or determined or I think that's just a, a miss, uh, not a helpful way of looking at it, because the words don't really refer to anything that we can experience. So I think it's much more helpful to look at that question, how much freedom of choice do we have, on a very pragmatic level, not on a, not on a some kind of metaphysical one. And when we look on the pragmatic level of our experience, it's pretty clear, and I'm sure you all had this experience, that the more aware we are, the more mindful we are, the greater the freedom of choice. If you're aware of an intention that arises in the mind, oh, I think I'll have another cookie. (laughs) 
Right? The intention arises in the mind. If we're not aware of that intention, the hand is in the cookie box before we know it. You know, we're just acting out. We're acting out the habits of our conditioning. If we are aware of the intention, that creates the possibility for many other conditioning forces to come into play. You know, maybe wisdom will come into play. Maybe renunciation will come into play. Maybe greed will continue to come into play and we go for the cookie. You know, but there are more possibilities when we're mindful. If we're not mindful, we're just on the single track of the uh, condition factor that prompted the intention. So in that way, mindfulness, and you know, I think this is a common experience in, in practice where we see how the more aware we are, there is greater choice. You know, is this wholesome in the mind? Is it unwholesome? Is it helpful? Is it unhelpful? You know, we, we can ask, we can bring in the investigation of the question, where is this action leading? Is it leading to someplace I want to go or not? Uh, so mindfulness and awareness plays a very critical role you know, in the whole unfolding of our lives. And it's really the only way out of the prison of our conditioning. You know, because we're all conditioned by so many different things. And if we're not aware of it, not aware of what's arising in the mind, it's like we're sleepwalking through life. You know? And there's not much freedom of choice in that. After 10 years of practice, I find myself feeling increasingly alone on the path for two main reasons. I feel individual responsibility to purify the unique pattern of clinging in my mind. And even with IMS, within IMS and Spirit Rock, there are dozens of teachers offering many practices and styles. I feel the need to combine them into something that works for me. This alone feeling seems off. Aren't we moving away from such an individual mindset? Well, that was an interesting question, just trying to sort out the balance between the individual responsibility we have for the purification of our minds, which the Buddha clearly pointed to. He said, <laughs> first I'll say what Munindra said about what the Buddha said. <laughs> Munindra used to say, the Buddha solved his problem, now you solve yours. <laughs> you know, and, and the Buddha would say, he only points the way. But you know, we each have to walk the path for ourselves. Nobody can walk it for us. Nobody can purify our minds for us. So in that sense, there is an individual responsibility. Where the feeling of commonality comes from, which I think ameliorates this feeling of aloneness, is as we enter the path and as we begin to look into our minds, you know, in our experience, 
we really begin to see the commonality you know, of all our experience. We're, we're all doing the work ourselves, but it's the same work. And it's the same patterns, you know, in different combinations of conditioning. We're all looking at the forces of greed and hatred and delusion. We're all practicing the qualities of you know, mindfulness and compassion and metta. And so when we really see that, when we see that the path itself is an understanding of impersonal qualities of mind, or we could say non-personal qualities, then there's a feeling of tremendous... uh, I hesitate a little bit to use the phrase oneness, because that has a lot of implications. But there is, there is a, a tremendous sense of just commonality, that we're all in this together, doing the same work, and that the things that are arising in our minds and our experience are, are not unique to ourselves. And just, just as one example of this, which is part of the metta practice but it's not a part that we often emphasize much, and I sometimes wonder why not, because it's, uh, it's quite significant. You know, as, as all of you know, we, we start the metta practice with starting with ourselves and then you know, with a benefactor and friend and finally to all beings. But in the traditional way it's taught, after doing it for ourselves, there's a transition and a transition phrase which says, just as I want to be happy, so may you be happy. Just as I want to be peaceful, so may you be peaceful. With all the phrases. And that kind of linking of ourselves with all, all others, whether it's an individual or all beings, is really a powerful reminder that all beings are seeking happiness. All beings are wishing for themselves what we wish for ourselves. And so it really cuts through that feeling of aloneness, that somehow you know, we're just doing this in isolation. Um, in terms of the aloneness coming from you know, the, the second reason it arose, you know, with, within this range of teachings that are offered and thinking, well, I have to find my own particular path, you know, putting together some combination of these teachings. There are a lot of different kind of techniques and methods, but there's really only one teaching. Don't cling. Be aware of what's arising and don't cling. There's no Buddhist tradition that says cling, you know, that says grasp. What's... There are a few things to keep in mind with this in terms of remembering the commonality of what we're practicing even though the methods may be different. It's not the method that's important. It's like 
the writer Wei Wu Wei, I don't know if you've read any of his books, uh, he's, I don't know if he's English or Irish, but he, he lived in Hong Kong for a long time and he clearly had some kind of awakening experience and he, he wrote these wonderful books with just these short little like epigrams of, of, of wisdom. One of, his, one of his little epigrams said, what are most people doing? Worshipping the teapot instead of drinking the tea. And it's very easy to fall into that trap where you know, we're using a particular method or way of practice and we start to privilege that among all the other methods and ways. And we're forgetting all the methods are just to decondition clinging in the mind, to decondition grasping. And the Buddha just said this so many times, liberation through non-clinging. It's not about experiences. I mentioned to somebody in an interview either yesterday or today, I have my own little awkwardly grammatical epigram which says, it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. And so we don't have to wait for any special experience to not cling. We might as well not cling now to whatever is arising. So then we just use the methods and, you know, whether you find some combination of methods or you're really clear on a particular one, all of that's fine. And it's not, it's not really a cause for feeling alone. It's understanding it's all the same practice. We're all doing the same thing because the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom is the same for all of us. Is there grasping in the mind or not? So that would be useful, you know, as, as you go through the day working with whatever particular technique of practice you are, just periodically to, to remind yourself that it's all about, is there clinging or not? That that's really what you're doing. That's what the practice is about. I would appreciate some pointers on lying down meditation. It is not often mentioned that I am aware of, so others, and myself included, might be helped by knowing, for example, how to keep from falling asleep. Lying down meditation can be uh, very fruitful. I would say not so much for beginners in meditation, because there is a strong likelihood then of falling asleep, but all of you you know, or have considerable experience in practice. And so it could be uh, a good posture just to practice in for a while. One of its benefits, uh, which I've experienced at different times, it just allows the body to really relax. You know, it's like not struggling uh, with the body or with pain so much or with tension and just begin to let everything go in that relaxed posture. The traditional posture for lying meditation is, you know, in, uh, in the Buddha's tradition, 
It's called the lion posture, you know, where he's lying on his right side with one foot re- you know, resting on the other and his hands uh, under his head. So you might try that. That's very classical, and there are a lot of statues you know, of the Buddha in that posture, the reclining Buddha. But you could also experiment. There are people, I know people who have done a lot of lying meditation on their backs. You know, and again, the body is very supported. One technique for staying awake, which numbers of people have said has been really helpful, is to just keep the arm up. You know, as you're lying, uh, and especially if you're lying on your back, because as soon as you start to drift off, the arm will fall, and it will either it'll fall and you'll fall asleep. <laughs> Or, as it falls, it will wake you up. <laughs> you know, and, oh yeah, it's um, drifting. Uh, but it could be worth experimenting with uh, you know, meditation in that posture. It, could, it, it, has, it has a lot of uh, benefit. First, it actually enables us to meditate when we're lying down, you know, when you go, when night you're going to sleep, as you're lying down before you fall asleep, you really can be in the habit of being as attentive, you know, as when you're sitting. I also see it as practice for dying. You know, of course, we don't exactly know how it's going to happen, but often people are in bed, you know, and because of illness or weakness. If we've practiced staying alert in that position, there's more of a chance that we can bring that alertness to that situation. So uh, it's, it's a training. How do clinging and craving differ? Okay, in the law of dependent origination, you know, there's contact, there's feeling, there's desire or craving, then clinging, then becoming, then rebirth. So desire or craving is that wanting in the mind. The clinging is the grasping at. You know, so it's it's taking desire a step further. It's not only the, the wanting in the mind, but a holding on. I had a really great experience on my last retreat of these three steps of dependent origination, craving, clinging, becoming. So I was doing a long self-retreat. I was sitting at home for about three months, just this last winter. And in my schedule, I was going to be coming out of retreat and then teaching with Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters in Italy which kind of was a nice thought of, you know, this was after a year of not teaching. So I'm there sitting away. It was maybe two months into the retreat. And my mind started having thoughts of Italy. <laughs> and then I thought, hmm, I really need a new jacket. 
And then I remembered, oh, there was this jacket in this catalog which would be perfect for this trip. And so I'm <laughs> in, out, in, out, oh, Italy, jacket. <laughs> wanting. And so I watched that for a while, but it kept coming up. And then it went from wanting to needing. <laughs> I want this, I need this jacket. I can't go to Italy without this jacket. <laughs> so then I'm watching, you know, it's kind of growing. <laughs> So went from wanting to needing to must have. I must have this. So this was a little downside of sitting at home. Went to my computer, looked online for the catalog, ordered the jacket. All this, you know, it was like in five minutes. <laughs> then of course, you know, two weeks later, however long the jacket came, it didn't fit. You know, it's <laughs> a total lesson in dukkha, unsatisfying. But to wash my mind, I went. This goes back to the faith and confidence question. One component of it is a growing sense of humor about our minds. You know, so I was, <laughs> of course, when I was caught up in it, I was, I was caught up. I was caught by the, I want, I need, I must have. But even soon afterwards, even you know, before it came, as soon as I was kind of back, saying, what was that all about? You know, and I saw it was just dependent origination. You know, it was just those links of the chain of the craving and the clinging and the becoming, the, you know, being moved to act. And to be able to just you know, smile at the mind, oh yeah, there it is. You know, and so rather than it be a situation of self-judgment or getting down on myself, it was just a learning, you know, it was a very clear example of this profound law of the conditioning in our mind. Um, but that's the difference between craving and clinging. It's wanting and it's needing. <laughs> you know, I must have. Is it possible to intercept thoughts and mental, project, mental prolifer proliferation before they develop? at a welling up of energy level. I think I detect thought in an early stage between breaths. Am I kidding myself? Uh, no, it is, when the mind is clearer, it's definitely possible to be, as I think I mentioned the other morning, the intention to think. You know, we can feel that welling up and it's almost like we know what the thought is gonna say before it actually takes birth as a thought. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's a good uh, practice just to be aware that that's possible and to... One, one way of practicing that level of attentiveness, because with thoughts it's hard, as I mentioned, you know, they're so slippery and they come in and we often miss their arising. We're not aware till they're already there, or even after they're over. But one thing you could do, which I found interesting at times, is to take a period of time, maybe five minutes or ten minutes, where all you're doing is waiting for thoughts. So you let, let go of the breath, let go of the body, let, you're not attending to any of that. You're just sitting, waiting for thoughts to arise. So it's like being in a theater with a, a movie screen, and you're watching the screen of the mind. And because that's all you're doing, 
it's actually much easier to see the thoughts as they pop up because, because all of your attention is on that uh, field. And there are many kinds. There are you know, loud thoughts and whispers of thoughts and then thoughts creep up from behind. You know, you're watching the screen and the thought will say, hmm, doing pretty well. You know, so it's like back here. So you need a 360-degree screen. But doing that just for, you know, not long periods of time, but even five or ten minutes, it hones our mindfulness of thought as an object. And you really can get a sense of, of how alert the mind can be to that. Lately, I've heard people differentiating empathy and compassion. Empathy being an opening to the suffering of others, but pulls down oneself too. Compassion being an opening for suffering without affecting one's own happiness. Could you please elaborate on this? How would one avoid cultivating empathy instead of compassion? Uh, That's not my understanding of empathy. So again, it depends, you know, people use words in different ways and it's important to have a clear understanding of what people mean by the word. For me, empathy, empathy and compassion are different, but empathy is that ability to feel what somebody else is feeling, you know, to be aware of what somebody else is feeling. And so... We recognize that somebody's feeling sad or happy or angry. Um, that, to me, does not imply that we're drowning in that emotion, regardless of how the other person is relating to it. It's more just a feeling of the emotion itself, or an awareness you know, that the other person is feeling it. So the empathy, I think, We can be empathetic without drowning or being lost in or identified with whatever the feeling is. It's just that connectedness. And I see that as being, in a way, the precursor to compassion. It's like when we are open to or can intuit or feel what the other person is feeling, then compassion takes it a step further how can I help? If if it's a feeling of if there's a feeling of suffering, you know. And so compassion then says, okay, "I'm aware that this person is feeling this. Is there something I can do to alleviate it? How can I help?" And that's the active aspect of compassion. So I see these two actually as being quite related. I don't see empathy as being. Uh, problematic in any way. I guess I'll qualify that. If there's some degree of mindfulness, you know, just as the other person could be identified in drowning in the emotion, if we're not mindful, we could be empathetic and feel it and we could also be pulled down into it. But that's, that's not the function of empathy. That's the function of the fact that we're not being mindful you know, of what's arising. Um, some eminent Buddhist teachers reject rebirth. 
saying it doesn't make sense to sophisticated Western thought. It was simply a teaching of the Buddha's time. Do you believe in the doctrine of rebirth? If so, why? First, uh, I think it's incorrect to say that the Buddha didn't teach it, or if he did, he didn't mean it. Because the suttas are just filled with references to rebirth. In the discussion of right view and right understanding, one of the aspects of that is the teaching on rebirth, you know, in different realms. So this is not by way of saying that because of that you should necessarily believe it. I'm just saying that this is definitely in the teachings. And so people who say, well, it was just the cultural norm of the Buddha's time and he took that on, that really doesn't make much sense to me because he was so radical in so many respects with regard to the culture of the time. <laughs> you know, that it seems very unlikely if he knew it to be untrue, he just would have said it uh, as a bow to the culture. You know, and I think it's, it's very, um, an integral part of his teaching and understanding. It is true that it's not part of our culture, you know, and certainly when I first became interested in Buddhism, I had no sense of rebirth at all. I had no belief in it. Over time, my understanding of it and also my relationship to it really changed over time. It evolved. And it evolved for a variety of reasons. The first reason was just as I got into my practice more and I was doing more and more reading, and I saw that everything that I was able to verify of the teachings turned out to be true in my experience. And so it just opened my mind, well, if, if all of this is true, you know, in the teachings, yes, there are many things that are beyond my current level of experience, but if the Buddha was right about this much, maybe I should be open to the possibility that he's right about the rest. So again, it didn't, it didn't create a belief, but it created an openness. Coleridge, the poet Coleridge used the phrase, the willing suspension of disbelief. Because we can be attached to disbelief as well as attached to belief, to blind belief. And so that just began to say, oh, well, let me keep an open mind about this. I don't know, but it's in the teachings. Let me see. Then I met teachers like Deepama, who... As many of you know, I mean, she was this extraordinary 
woman with just the deepest levels of awakening and also all the traditional you know, powers of mind that you read about in the texts. And Manindra had trained her in all of these powers. And one of them is seeing the different realms, seeing into past lives. And if you've read, many of you have probably read the book for life, Deepama, it, it describes uh, some of the amazing things she could do. So when I met her, you know, and she said directly, you know, that she had seen all this. That was, well, this is somebody who's had direct experience for themselves, you know, and is saying this. It again strengthened not only the sense of openness, but maybe, oh, well, maybe this really is true. Again, it's not, I don't, I don't say this, that it's proof of it, or that it creating an absolute certainty in my mind, but it, it was just this evolution of opening to this teaching. Then in the course of meditation practice, just in doing Vipassana, you know, without the psychic powers, although in the beginning of my practice, I used to have these great fantasies of everything I was going to do with these powers, you know, <laughs> fly through my friend's windows, <laughs> But none of that materialized. <laughs> but just in the course of Vipassana, you know, where we really get a very direct experience of the mind, of consciousness, and the immaterial nature of it. And we begin to see that consciousness is a different process than the body. And when this becomes very clear, when we, when we really have the experience of consciousness as a process, but an immaterial one, then I could even begin to imagine how it happened. You know, that there is a continuity to the flow of this immaterial process independent of the physical body. So again, it's not, this is not proof that it's true, but you know, there was just a growing intuition, oh, well, that's maybe how it happens. You know, just as our consciousness in this life is a process, you know, of arising and passing, arising and passing, conditioned in each moment. And this is the Abhidhamma teaching, you know, death consciousness, the quality of the mind, conditions rebirth consciousness. So it's a continuation of exactly what's happening now within this life. So that, that was part of the you know, matrix of understanding. Then, kind of the last thing I'll say about this. Some of you may know of our friend, Sri Lankan friend, Dhamma Ruan. Young, he's about 40 now. Uh, he was in our first teacher training program here. Uh, he's back in Sri Lanka now teaching. I knew him when he was a young boy in Sri Lanka, and I knew his parents there because they were students of Manindra. And he was pretty remarkable because at age two, between two and three, he spontaneously started chanting these long, complex Pali suttas. 
I mean, they never studied them. They weren't kind of in his house. And it was in a melody that they don't even chant in Sri Lanka now. You know, it's, it's just about a two or three-year-old chanting these suttas perfectly. And they recorded. You know, his parents recorded them. And later, as he grew a little older, and he had, he had spontaneously deep meditation, even as a young boy, he would go into deep states of samadhi for hours at a time. As he got a little older and was explaining what was going on, he said that these chants were coming from his recollection of a previous life as a monk in the time of Buddha Gosa, who was a great Buddhist, uh, wrote, he wrote the Path of Purification in the fifth century you know, AD. And Dhammaruin had been a monk in his circle and part of the monks who had been chanting the, chanting the suttas. And just as this very young boy, it was these memories that were coming back. So I actually have a recording of uh, you know, his chanting as a young boy. And I thought just to play a few minutes for you because it's so extraordinary. And it does make one wonder, at least, what else would explain it. You know, it's so. Maybe we'll hear it. <laughs> That's the tape. Oh, not this one. Yeah, yeah. This was the track.
that's pretty amazing. <laughs> and when his parents brought some of the Sri Lankan monks, you know, to hear him, this is when he was a young boy, they were saying that the the sutta is being uh, recited perfectly. And you could tell, I mean, there was no, it's like there was no hesitation, it was, it was just... So, this is what leads me, <laughs> inclines me to believe, <laughs> even without proof, you know, and it's certainly without, you know, absolute certainty, and, but just as we become more open to the possibility and begin to experience, you know, in different ways. Uh, yeah, it just, it opens a possibility of understanding for us. So there are a bunch of more questions, but I think this is a nice place to stop. So why don't we sit for a few minutes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.